You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. educators throughout the world have been forced to streamline our dictionaries and encyclopedias because of the demands of modern slang. Selected to perform this Herculean task of rewriting these ponderous volumes of knowledge is Professor Bertram Potts, who knows nothing about the subject of slang. This is research, isn't it? Yes. Certainly. Who was that guy learned so much from watching an apple drop? Isaac Newton, the law of gravity. Yeah, that's him. And I want you to look at me as another apple, Professor Potts. Just another apple. Yeah, that's perfect. What are you doing? I'm going to show you what yum yum is. Here's yum. Here's the other yum. And here's yum yum. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Kat Ellinger. Hello. Also back in the booth is Ms. Maitland McDonough. It is always a pleasure. 
We are kicking off a month of screwball comedy discussion with a look at Howard Hawks' 1941 film Ball of Fire. Written by Billy Wilder and Charles Brackett, the film stars Gary Cooper as one of an octet of professors who are writing an encyclopedia. Cooper is writing an article on slang only to find that he is very deficient. In an effort to bolster his research, he comes across Sugarpuss O'Shea, played by Barbara Stanwyck. She's the mall of a vicious gangster and she's on the lamb where she holds up with the professors. And of course, hilarity ensues. We will be spoiling Ball of Fire as well as its remake as Song is Born. So if you don't want anything spoiled, please turn off the podcast and come back after you've seen them. We will still be here. So Maitland, when was the first time you saw Ball of Fire and what did you think? I certainly couldn't pinpoint the year, but it was a movie I saw on television. Black and white movies were a huge part of, of my childhood and my teenage years because most of them were available in huge packages and were being played on local television stations, which here in New York were 9 and 11. I was fascinated by them. Obviously, horror was my first and foremost love, but pretty much any movie of that period was a movie I would at least give 15 or 20 minutes to in order to decide whether or not I liked it. I loved gangster movies which Ball of Fire is. Granted, you don't see too much of the gangsters, but it's a gangster movie nonetheless. I loved horror. I, I loved anything that had some chills and thrills in it. And I found it absolutely delightful. I really had no idea at that time of the sense of humor that screwball comedies had and how clever it was. And the older I got when I really saw it, the more I realized how extremely clever Ball of Fire and movies like it are. They were witty. They were sexually suggestive without being smutty enough to run afoul of any kind of oversight of these kind of movies. And they were so brisk. I mean, those, those movies did not waste a moment. There was never nothing happening. Even when people were talking, they were gesticulating. They were walking around the room. They were fixing a drink. Just all kinds of things going on. And I fell in love. And after that, I was there with my TV guide something I think we've discussed in episodes, in other episodes, taking out my pen and marking off movies that I needed to see, including movies that played in the middle of the night, because, of course, that era preceded the creation of the, certainly the home use VCR. So you wanted to see one of those movies and it was on at two o'clock in the morning, you were either staying up or you were going to bed early and getting up in order to see them. And Kat, how about yourself? I'm so glad to hear Maitland talk about the television and the role these films have in television because it's pretty much the same experience for me. I saw a lot of these films as a kid or like, especially and then into my late teens, early twenties when cable really took off in the UK in the early nineties. Then I got to see more, but it's like my mum was the horror person. My dad was the comedy person. So I grew up with this like two strain <laughs> thing of watching comedy with my dad and then horror with my mum. But like Maitland, I never really understood how clever they were until later on. And I love them because they're really American. And when I was a kid, anything American seemed really exotic to me, which probably sounds weird now we live in this globalized society. But 
when E.T. came along and you saw kids Halloween trick-or-treating for the first time and just it's so American, that film, and the era of Spielberg, that was the era I grew up in and it was so alien to, like, 80s Britain. It was just, like, really drab. Back to the future, it's like, oh, my God, it's just so cool. So all the American comedies I just really love, especially the older ones, because... You know, even when I couldn't understand how clever they were, they just seemed so distinctly American. Uh, and anything that was kind of distinctly American in the, in a more classic way, I was naturally drawn to it because it just seemed so exotic. I'm disillusioned now <laughs> America. But then later on, I started to understand, actually, these films were so clever. And I have this, like, acute interest in, like, dialect anyway, and especially... Like the scripts of Wilder and Brackett, Brackett as an outsider also had this fascination with American dialogue. And it was took Brackett to write that part. But this one really plays on that aspect of words and their meaning because it's like a key part of the plot. So there's like even more of it. And I just think they're wonderful. I think Screwball is one of the most subversive, underrated genres of American film. Like Maitland said, it's sexually suggestive even perverse sometimes and you know made just as the haze code is really being clamped down and you just look at it and you just think that they were like anarchists the stuff they were sneaking or not even that slyly sneaking in some of the time i know when we talked about double indemnity and that whole conversation about the who the vacuum pipe and stuff and you're like oh my god this is so perverse yeah, it was a totally a TV, like a TV thing for me too. Like, and the, we only had like four channels in the eighties and BBC two seemed to like to show a lot of screwball. Don't know what that, and Harold Lloyd as well and Laurel and Hardy. So they really were like the cornerstones of my childhood comedy because the British make good comedy shows, but not good comedy films. I don't know why, <laughs> but we don't. So. It was all the American stuff, but it's wonderful. And even now, like I'm just always happy to see it and talk about it. It's just all so much fun. This is one of the best. Like this is one of the best. Another thing I should say, Kat, speaking to the fact that you saw an America that was just fascinating to you in these movies, I did too, because the America of these screwball comedies was completely alien to the America in which I had grown up. And I think my perception of the past was that, oh, it was all old people, like my grandma, who was a terrific old person, but nonetheless, she was very old and she grew up in a very different Ireland in this case. She did not grow up in America. She didn't come here until she was in her 20s. But I just had that thing that a lot of kids have, that feeling that everything that happened before you were born was just so far away and so old. But then I would see screwball comedies and I would think, wow, I love these people. And especially I love these women. They're so smart and so sharp and so taken no nonsense from anybody ever under any circumstances and so inner directed, doing the things they wanted to do, sometimes doing things they had to do to get the things they wanted to do, always figuring out a way to make their own lives the way they wanted them. And Ball of Fire is just a beautiful example of that. Sugar Puss O'Shea is just plain her own woman. She does what she wants. She figures out how to get what she wants in, as far as I can tell, every situation. 
but she's also not a scheming bitch. She's funny and she's clever and she's like, oh, I'd love to know her. It would be so much fun to hang out with Sugar Puss O'Shea. I didn't really get exposed to screwball comedies for whatever reason. It wasn't until I went to college and was in film school and uh, my professors were talking about screwball comedies versus comedy of manners. And I think that's when, and I probably said this on the episode, that's when I started to see like Lubitsch films and was like, wow, get this into my veins right now. This is amazing. And Kat, you made the point about screwball being very much an American phenomenon. And why do you think that is? Why was there not screwball in other countries? Was this more of a, a reaction to the depression or what, what was going on? There's several things about the screwball that make it distinctly American. First of all, it's the really stylized dialogue, like the noir, which I'm always fascinated with that is distinctly American, like all the slang of the time. You've also got this really interesting class aspect that you don't get in British comedy. I'm thinking ever, maybe later on. But this idea, if you look at uh, Sugarpuss O'Shea, she is a working class woman who infiltrates this very bourgeois world, but is herself and she's happy to be herself. And I think because of the depression and that whole American dream of you can be anything, class is treated a lot differently than it is in British film. And so it's like Maitland said, you see these women and they're very, very modern and they're very forthright. And a lot of them do have working class roots. And at that point in British comedy, it wasn't like that at all. We've got this weird relationship with class and, until the British New Wave, it's all that whole know your place and the jolly butler type. And it's just like, oh, it's just so old fashioned. I hate to say it, but British film was really old fashioned, even when it was made in the 40s. And <laughs> it was always really out of step. America always seemed, and I, and I feel weird saying this now, knowing as much as I do about Trump's America, but it always seemed so much more sophisticated and modern than the kind of background that I had. And so there is something very specifically American about it, and it is to do with the Depression, because obviously these films came along at the height of the Depression and in the aftermath of that. And a lot of them were about working people, like the the trope of the working girl, or Stanwyck seems more of a progression from what Mae West was doing, but more of a sophisticated type. So she... She maybe isn't as typical for Screwball, but this aspect of just people in the 1930s doing the sort of like career women and stuff that you would more associate with the 70s and 80s, that to me always seems specifically American, that, that America had much more modern culture much earlier on than, than we did here. But they, they are so specifically of their time and place which is one of the things that just makes them so brilliant. Did people talk like that in real life? I don't think so. It's too clever. People never have that. That Even really clever people don't have that speed. of. So there's something about it, yeah, that's it's like this whole idea of the American dream, like living on your wits and getting ahead. And, you know, whereas here in Britain, it's like, know your place. Don't ever get above your station. The fuck are you doing? Get back down there. <laughs> like the Sugar Puss O'Shea British version would be some like, 
I don't know. It would be like a tragedy. It would be like some awful thing. Then she'd be rejected at the end and she'd go off to live in squalor. <laughs> Plus gangsters. We didn't have gangsters here. That wasn't, a, that wasn't a British thing. We had the craze later on, but, you know. I was reminded a lot of uh, My Fair Lady while I was watching this. This whole idea of Professor Potts when he goes out because he realizes he doesn't know enough slang and he goes out and he's writing down what everybody is saying. I was so reminded of Henry Higgins on the other side of that pillar writing down what uh, Eliza Doolittle is saying. And I'm glad that Sugar Puss isn't transformed like she learns a lesson but it isn't a matter of let's take sugar puss out of the gutter and turn her into the sophisticated woman she's the same ish woman at the end as she is at the beginning she is a very different spin on a very negative stereotype the stereotype of the woman who will do anything to get ahead however debasing however Contrary to the principles she was taught when she was growing up, she just wants to get ahead. And generally speaking, it was an economic thing. By and large, it wasn't all about, I want to be a rich person. It was, I don't want to be a poor person. I don't want to live within the constraints of the block or occasionally the small town. Small town girl goes to the big city to get away from the stifling expectations of who she's going to marry and what she's going to do with her life, rolls into the big city and finds this fast-paced, snappy-talking, glossy, beautiful city full of people in great clothes, great cars passing by on the street, beautiful buildings. All of that is the core of that aspirational thing in America because, as Kat said, in America, everybody was told in one way or another that you could do that that it was possible that you didn't have to spend your entire life being poor just because your parents were poor and your grandparents were poor and their grandparents were poor immigrants from some some other country, someplace in Europe by and large, but that you could make your own destiny. There is a level clearly on which there, that is a myth. There are absolutely barriers to breaking out of an impoverished upbringing. And I think that they are, frankly, more apparent than ever now. I would like to think that society had progressed in such a way that it was more possible to move from your class to another. But it seems to me that that's not the case. And it also seems to me that movies, by and large, recognize that. To make a movie like Ball of Fire today... I think would be impossible unless you set it into an ironic context or a context in which it was simply a fairy tale that we could all enjoy, like Working Girl. Well, that these eight professors are all sequestered in this huge mansion in order to write an encyclopedia project over what they're like, what, eight years into this? And they say they have three more to go. The bill is being footed by Miss Toten, who uh, her father uh, actually was the one that donated all this money because he was so mad that he wasn't included in the encyclopedia as large as these other inventors because he invented the electric toaster. So, of course, he wants to make sure that there is an encyclopedia written where he gets at least three quarters of a page. 
And I love this whole thing of Totten, who's this kind of, you know, you're talking about class. She's kind of uptight, but yet she's really enamored with the Gary Cooper professor, as you would be. And Gary Cooper, who stands a full head taller than every other professor that's there, which really kind of lends itself to that metaphor of this being Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, where Gary Cooper's the human and the rest of the professors are dwarves because they're all so small compared to him. He was so good at comedy. I wish he'd done more. I mean, he's great in Bluebeard's Eighth Wife as well. You know, and obviously Gary Cooper was Gary Cooper, but he was just so good at comedy. One thing I do love about Screwball in terms of classes, you'd often got like working class heroes which I was writing an entirely unrelated essay recently about the underclass and how, because that's my social background, it's not even working class, it's like underclass, like post-Reagan-Thatcher sort of working class, how working class people now generally only come into social problem films and we're only allowed these kind of two-dimensional things that where we're there to serve a sort of agenda like a, a, a social agenda or some message like I, Daniel Blake, and apologies to anyone who loves that film, but I fucking hate what Ken Loach is doing these days. I like, oh, just stop. So I don't want to watch a film, two-hour film about some guy trying to get his welfare benefits. Thank you. But, you know, you, you generally don't get those types anymore. And yet in Screwball, earlier on in American film, these were specifically made for working class people, as like Maitland said, as fairy tales, you know, and they had this whole aspirational thing. But it's it's about enjoyment. You know, you get people that are funny and they they're not stupid. You know, they're not beaten down by a series of like unfortunate events. You know, they, they can bounce back from that. And it is really good to see that. I think it's a really positive. It might not be a realistic thing, but it is. In terms of escapism, it's like it is positive. I really enjoy, which is why I really love Mae West films. Like Mae West came out in the talkies, speaking all Brooklyn. Like fuck you, I'm. I'm like, I think she said once, "I speak Brooklynese," and it was so defiant because they tried to clear clean up the talkies so much, and they got rid of the people with the common voices. So I love that aspect, but I also love the fact that masculinity is so lampooned and ridiculous. In this, we basically have like a group of what, nine middle-aged and, and even past middle-aged virgins who live in this weird sheltered house and don't seem to know how to speak to women. Gary Cooper, be, like knowing his personal life and the stories that went around about him, Gary Cooper playing the, like, what, how old was he when he did this? Like, at least 40-year-old virgin or whatever. But masculinity was always, always ridiculous in these films. Absolutely ridiculous. And this is a perfect example. Even the gangsters, even old Dana Andrews is fucking ridiculous. To have Dana Andrews and Dan Daria both as these gangsters, and then not to say that Ralph Peters doesn't carry his own weight, but I love the, and I love their names, Joe Lilac, Duke Pastrami, Asma Anderson. I just love these guys. And you have to assume it was a very self-conscious joke to name him Lilac. Lilac and Lavender always had that implication, no matter what. So when you name that guy Lilac, his big butch attitudes are just 
funny before he does anything, before any part of the story unfolds to undermine his powerful gun-driven masculinity. It's just hilarious. They're all virgins except for Professor Oddly, who was once married. And I have to say, I mean, MVP award to Richard Hyden as Professor Oddly. He is really in danger of stealing this entire movie with that incredible voice that he has. And then when he, I think he does this three times in the film, maybe more when he starts at one pitch and then has to bring himself down to another where he's just like, whatever. And then he drops it and it's, so fucking good. I just love him, and his one-liners are fantastic as well. You are all speaking very glibly about a subject of which you know practically nothing. Thank you, Audley, but I really... I judge I do not have to start with uh, basic principles. (laughs) Uh, Being... Being a botanist, I find an astonishing parallel between a woman's heart and the windflower... And that speaks very much to the fact that the dialogue in these films is diamond sharp. You could cut yourself on it. And it doesn't matter, again, that it's preposterous that all of these people talk that way. The professors talk that way. Sugarpuss talks that way. The gangsters talk that way. Everybody, they they got it. They got it. They got it. They've got an answer to everything. They have a, a question about everything. They have a take on everything. It is one of the things I think that makes movies like this so enjoyable for people who have grown up on now generations of movies with very different takes, more realistic takes, more conspicuously tough takes. It makes these movies so watchable because they put you into a world and you absolutely accept the parameters of that world. And you can enjoy it for that reason and aspire to it. I so want to live in that world where all conversations are like that. Oh, totally. Wouldn't it be just great? Every, you've always got a one-liner. You've all, you're not just doing the thing where you say something to someone and it just comes out lame. And three weeks later, you think of the perfect comeback. <laughs> like, you know, it's just instant. It's just everybody is on all the time. But there's just so much energy there, I think. And, and even like every little bit player in these films, it's one thing I miss about that studio era where they had all those invested contract players. I don't know much about any of the, the, the kind of supporting cast in this, but they'd have like every little, every little role would be filled with like this really strong sort of contract supporting actor. And they had all these different types and, so the films were just populated with really interesting characters the whole time. And I know Billy Wilder was just really, he was really obsessed, I think, like me, with with American culture, especially of that period, because it seems so cool. Like, he always said he thought of himself as American, and although his films could be quite satirical or even cynical, he loved that culture and he loved the language. Whenever he writes one of these scripts... You can tell, like you can tell, it's Brackett and Wilder. They were just, you know, they were good scriptwriters. And Preston Sturgis, obviously, was scriptwriting around this time. But they were like, I don't know, they were the slickest. Like, this isn't a short film, but you just breeze through it. Like, same with any Billy Wilder film. They're always like in excess of two hours, but you never feel like you've been there for two hours. Like, there's nothing wasted. 
not a second. Like, even if it's just like one of the professors making a funny cop, like every little second of the film is something interesting is happening. Uh, you know, none of these scenes where people are just standing around giving off their backstory or whatever. You've got somebody standing around in a smoking jacket looking fucking ridiculous or, you know, some professor with his jam or like, there's just so much happening. I've seen this film so many times now, but I always notice new little things about it every time I watch it. You know, just little characters. Here it was like, it was the jam obsession I got fixated on this time. The way that they get punished because they're jam, they're jam privileges are taken away (laughs) miss bragg who's like even more than joe lilac i think miss bragg is the villain of this film because she's just such a harpy and just the way she treats all these old men like little kids and when barbara stanwick comes in a sugar puss it's just like she's immediately threatened and i do like i guess what is it all the men want to impress sugar puss because they all set out their pants to be taken care of by Miss Bragg. That's a weird little detail in there, but it's both in this and the remake. And I'm like, okay, I I guess they really want to make sure that Sugar Puss sees them in pressed pants. I actually think that's a beautiful moment because it just speaks to the fact that this is a house full of men and they're living like men. Okay, they're older men, so they're not like frat boys. We're, this is not Animal House that we're living in. But they really have in, in clearly reverted to the way guys would live if they didn't have wives telling them to brush their hair, give me those pants so I can iron them. Oh, for God's sake, there's a hole in your sweater. Like all of those things that falls upon wives to do to make sure that their husbands don't devolve into the the bachelor guy who just doesn't even realize that he's forgotten all of the basics of grooming and deportment and keeping the house clean. He doesn't even notice the house isn't clean and he doesn't notice that there's half an inch of dust on the top of, of anything except the books in this house. They'd notice it on the books, but not on anything else. And Sugarpuss just comes in there like the white tornado Clean it all up. Kat, you mentioned the supporting cast and all of these guys that are playing the professors. I mean, everybody in this cast is just really firing on all cylinders. I love the garbage man, Alan Jenkins, when he comes yeah, in and just lays great. all that slang on him. But I mean, Oscar Homolka in here, Henry Travers, who most people know as Clarence the Angel from It's a Wonderful Life, uh, both S.Z. Sakal and Leonid Kinsky, who were both in Casablanca, and Leonid Kinsky, who I didn't realize not only is he in, he's Sasha in Casablanca, but he's also the anarchist that comes in in uh, Duck Soup and just starts laying fooey all over them. Like I already mentioned, uh, Richard Hyden, but uh, just all of these faces. I mean, we talked about the gangsters a little bit, but the professors are all super rich characters. And I love that they each have their own little specialty. So when the, the garbage man comes in and he's like, oh, there's this Quizola on the radio and I got to know these answers. And, you know, how did uh, Cleopatra die? And the one guy's like, oh, well, that's my field of expertise. And then, you know, each one of them has their little thing. And they kind of use those towards the 
the end when they're defeating the gangsters, like, oh, well, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. Or like how they're all super smart when uh, Gary Cooper starts talking about, um, you know, the walls of Jericho or just all of these things where they can just immediately pick up on the references and know exactly what he's talking about. And like, oh, okay, we're going to focus this lens up here on this rope and uh that's how we're going to take out one gangster and then that gary cooper knows the first line of a very particular volume and they go and look it up and figure out how to topple the other gangster it's like that they're using their intelligence in the right way in this and they're not a bunch of stuffy fuddy-duddies like to your point maitland they are living like a bunch of men they are very determined to get this encyclopedia done but at the same time they're very human they're not just a bunch of stuffed shirts it's something we've lost about hollywood now is we don't have that cat that's kind of stable of you just get these like stock character actors and you look them up and they want like 350 credits like you start looking at what they're in you're like jesus and these were like really hardcore actors as well a lot come out of vaudeville come out of theater you know but there was a place for them in the 30s and 40s because of the types of films that were were being made there was with these huge sort of very populated casts with lots of things going on so it's it's kind of sad because i i can't think of the equivalent like the i was trying to think of like the modern equivalent and we don't really seem to have those people anymore, do we? Those like, like familiar faces that just pop up and you're like, Oh, hey, like, like Clarence, like, Hey, it's Clarence, you know, we don't seem to have that now. Uh, films have, have changed so much in that way. Not for the good. I don't think. Yeah. Not for the good. And I think we started to lose that after the seventies. I think right through the seventies, you were still seeing. Those faces, those guys, those women who were not stars and you may not even have known their names, but you'd see them in a, a small part and you'd say, Oh, right. I know who that is. And I know what kind of character that person plays because they did, you know, those, those actors, those character actors were often repeating the same basic role from film to film to film. Casting agents knew who they were. I'm sure there were directors who knew who they were, and there was a place for them, particularly in movies with large casts. And a lot of them weren't that young either, were they? Which is a great thing. You'd have casts populated with middle-aged or older people. They weren't just like exclusively very young casts. You'd get a lot of older characters as well. These like, you'd see people come out of theater and they just get into cinema in like, like when they turn 50. Like that's when their cinema, like that, could that happen now? I doubt it. Uh, we just seem to have very, very youthful ensemble cast now, and none of these like more interesting characters, older characters. So the the professors to me are like stand out in that character type, because uh, like you said, there were scenes in there that they threatened to like topple the whole. You know, you've got Barbara Stanwyck and Gary Cooper, two of the biggest stars of the era, but threatened to be like undermined. <laughs> By one line from, from, from a supporting player in there. It's so, it's so good. In a way, Gary Cooper, I appreciate he like plays it quite straight as well. He doesn't over, overplay it. I think he had a really good sense of comedy. He just didn't get to do that much of it. And you just think, I wonder if he'd, you know, 
I guess County Grant really had the market on that one, but he 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 was as good as Carrie, I think. Even that the smallest parts in this movie were played by people like when the waiter shows up and it's Elisha Cook Jr. I'm just like, okay, yeah, <laughs> that's a treat. <laughs> Guy's got a couple lines, or Miss um, Totten's uh, lawyer character uh, Larson, played by Charles Lane, and. You know, if you take a look at a picture of Charles Lane, you'll be like, oh, yeah, I've seen him a thousand times. And because he was just one of those faces again, another It's a Wonderful Life, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, like all of these movies where you're just like, oh, yeah, I know this guy. And he always shows up and he's almost always like the uptight guy who's like, you can't do that. And he <laughs> plays it perfectly in this. That Miss Totten is horny as well, isn't oh, she? Oh, she's a major <laughs> horn dog. I like she's throwing her money around because really she's just, you know, she's got her eye on Gary and you just think, yeah, you go for it. <laughs> She'd like to split his infinitives. <laughs> and the thing I love is that her character could be a really sad stereotype because in appearance terms, she has been cast to play the aging spinster. That could be really sad, particularly because for a lot of women, not being married was a major disability in life. It, women had roles, and the biggest role was a, a wife and mother. And if you didn't have that, you really were, you had to be something pretty spectacular and pretty self-directed and pretty sure of yourself to make a life where people didn't feel sorry for you. And frankly, even if you did do that, there were going to be people who would say, oh, you know, she's she had such a great career and she bought that beautiful house, but the poor dear, she doesn't have a husband to make breakfast for. One of the things that's great about screwball comedies is you don't see a lot of that character. You see a lot of women who don't give a fig whether they get married or not, or if they do want to get married, that's somewhere way in the future when they're old, like their mothers. What they want to do now is they want to either have fun, go to parties, date a lot of guys, or they want to have a career. They want to make something of themselves. Just again, I think something that makes movies like this really easy for today's viewers to look at and enjoy because they're not being confronted with the kind of stereotypes you see, especially in the fifties of women who are nothing but the helpers to men, their wives, their mothers, their secretaries, their babysitters, their kindergarten teachers. They're, they are helpmates of one kind or another, not women who have ideas about what they want to do and go ahead and do them. Well, it's like to go back to the It's a Wonderful Life, but the the whole Mary not getting married, like the dual paradox, you know, the fate worse than death, she's a spinster librarian. And I love It's a Wonderful Life, but that always makes me laugh. It's like she's a librarian and she never married because old George Bailey wasn't there to save her. And it's like, hang on, as his wife, she's this incredibly intelligent, resourceful woman who runs his house. Like, <laughs> but that's nothing to do with George. Like, how is him not being there mean that she ends up this like terrorized? But it is such a, I guess that's Capra though, isn't it? <laughs> it's such a ridiculous stereotype. Scruble was so great, I think, because. The Hays Code come down and they were like, you're right, you can't have sex in film. You look at what Stanwyck was doing in pre-code, like Babyface, talk about the go-get. I mean, she's so incredible. And they're like, you can't do that anymore, especially when it came to women. Like, women's sexuality was just too dangerous. 
I think at one point, like, Mae West was banned from, like, film, TV, and radio, because, like, being exposed to Mae West would be, like, you know, you could get so corrupted by her. And, yeah, the screwball was like, okay, we'll, we'll kind of play with you, with your rules. But, um, you know, but then they became so ridiculously feminist in a way. Because you get women like uh, Rosalind Russell in His Girl Friday who's got rid of Carrie Grant once. She's, like, over his shit. She's like, just grow up. I'm, I'm being a reporter now. Or just wait, like Sugar Puss in this, when we meet her doing a drum boogie thing. You know, she's got a whole thing going on. <laughs> she doesn't need men dragging her down. She's got a, a audience. She's a incredible when she comes. What an introduction as well. Stanwick is just mesmerizing. And none of these women are like, even though they are kind of, they always resort then to the marriage at the end. But... All the bit in between is, like, really subversive because it is like filmmakers and writers were just sticking their fingers up to the Hays Code and saying, right, okay, well, if we can't put sex in, we'll we'll channel it into... I think Ma- Molly... I was talking to Mike about this off-air, but I couldn't find it again. I've got somewhere a brilliant essay that Molly Haskell wrote on Screwball. I can't remember where it was from, though, but she was talking about how sex became aggression. So it all became about banter and aggression and how couples would get one up on on each other through, like, this verbal thing. Hence all the, like, really clever dialogue. And because that in itself became the sex, (laughs) like, and it's so, it's really clever and really... I think much more sophisticated than a lot of films that are being made in 2020, 2021, 2022, a lot more sophisticated. Uh, because those rigid boundaries were there, people had to, and Wilder, um, although this is a Hawks directed film, uh, Wilder was the best of that. He seemed to thrive within the Hays Code. When he had to be clever and he couldn't be obvious, that was when Billy Wilder was at his best, I think. Because uh, you just seem to have a knack to know how to make things kind of perverse and and subversive without being really obvious about it. And it was all to do with the timing as well, the timing and the way people would deliver lines. Uh, so they might not even look that innocuous on the page or even suspect, but as soon as they come out of someone like Barbara Stanwyck's mouth, you're like, oh, my God, that's, that's, that scene where she's taking her stockings off is just like, you know, that's the sort of thing my dad would have been sat there watching that with me when he see he would have been having palpitations on the other side of the sofa <laughs> quietly. The drum buggy dress is so fabulous that it appears in both versions of this movie. It appears in black and white and it appears in color. And it's still black, so it doesn't really matter. But god damn what a dress that is. That is incredibly revealing. It basically has no skirt. It's just got a bunch of little strips of, of cloth that sparkle, of course. It's cut away at the midriff. And then it's got that great single strap holding it up crosswise. It, that dress is hot stuff. Yeah, it looks like something Bosco from Drag Race would be wearing right now. Oh, in a heartbeat. Are you kidding? I mean, it is fabulous. The other thing that I think we have to just talk about for a second is that brilliant as all that dialogue is, it is dialogue that wouldn't work delivered by a lot of actors, certainly now, because it requires a level of enunciation, a level of speed, and a level of subtle inflection that can make the most innocuous on paper line sound vaguely suggestive. 
like a takedown when the words aren't a takedown, but the way it's said, oh my God, it's like a knife just went across somebody's leg. It is, it's extraordinary. And it's one of the things I love about comedies of this period generally, but screwball comedies particularly, because they so often feature sharp, smart talking, ambitious women. Those women know how to use those words to cut. We did talk on the um, double indemnity episode about Wilder and just that patter that he had and just all of the slang that he was throwing in there, all of those little things that Fred McMurray was saying. Everybody in that movie was just, you know, doing it super fast, all that. What makes this one a little bit even more impressive to me is that they're doing that type of patter, but they're also doing it with slang. And so that's the whole thing of like Gary Cooper trying to learn the slang and just being fascinated. Kind of reminded me of the old Tex Avery cartoon where the guy goes up to St. Peter and he starts to speak and St. Peter has no idea what he's talking about. So they, he actually sees everything literally that this guy is saying, you know, howdy, Dan, what's new? How's tricks? What's cooking? What's cookie? How's tricks? What a strange language you bring from the earth. I, I don't seem to follow you. I just love how they're going back and forth and like that little um, uh, powwow that they have where they're uh, discussing slang and all of the stuff about corny. I think it was Miss O'Shea who used it yesterday in reference to the cuffs that I wear. The word is corny. Yeah. Did you say they were corny? Because of the cornstarch in them? Because it's 1941. And corny means old fashioned. Kind of hick, loose tooth. Mortimer snored. Uh, 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 uh. Oh, jeez. There's other kinds of corn, too. When you give your girl your fraternity pin, that's corny, too. Mm. Yeah, I'll take a joke. Uh, that's no lady, that's my wife. Making your baby's shoes under ashtrays. That's corn. Right off the cob. Well, let's stick to corn. Uh, is it synonymous with baloney? No, it's, it's anything that gets him in the sticks. Long time no see. That's Indian corn. Yeah, when a guy comes to see a girl and says, let's turn off the lights, it hurts my eyes. Brother, that's corn. The implication is he's trying to pull some hoi-toi-toi. You're catching on, Professor. Countryfied, old-fashioned, sentimental. When they're making references to like, you know, oh, you know, he's stay by the Amici. And it's like, okay, so then you have not only do you get the slang for it, then you have to realize, oh, they're talking about the movie with Don Amici where he's Alexander Graham Bell. So it's stay by the telephone. It's like that weird... It's not that Cockney rhyming slang kind of thing, but just those weird things of like uh, things standing for other things and just giving you layers and layers and layers of the slang that they're using. It's fantastic. And, or like even just a simple line where uh, she's talking about her throat and uh, that she's got a very sore throat. And she says, what is it? It's uh, as red as the daily worker and just a sore. And it's like, I love this, these lines and just that they're able to throw those out. Like you were saying. These are popular movies. These are not movies that were made for a particularly sophisticated or particularly discerning or well-read audience. These were movies that were aimed at regular working and middle-class people who went to the movies every week, if not more often, because that's just what you did on Friday. Well, yeah, you and your friends, your family, your kids, whoever you did things with went to the movies. It was such an ingrained part of American life then. Movies, movies were not a special occasion, unless they were gone with the wind. Movies were just a thing you did. It was like turning on your TV, except that, of course, they didn't have their TVs to turn on then. So movies were filling that gap and were even more special because 
you couldn't come home from work and turn it on while you ate you, you ate your dinner or something. You had to go out to the movies. You know, people sometimes now talk with amazement at the fact that people used to dress up nicely to go to the movies. Well, that's because they were going out and people used to dress nicely to go out. One of the things that your parents, your mother in particular, because it always fell to your mother, would impress upon you is, well, people judge you by the way you're dressed. So if you go out looking like a bum, everybody's going to think you're a bum. And if you go out dressed nicely, people will assume that you are a well-bred, educated person. And at that point, it'll be up to you to prove otherwise if that's the case. People can talk about that as though it were a superficiality that was detrimental. But in a very real way, these codes of dress and behavior allowed people to be treated by the image of themselves to which they aspired, rather than inherently the reality of their lives. You could be poor. You could be in a bad place in your life. Your husband left you and now you're home with the kids and your mother again and you're in a bad place. But if you put your your game face on and you dress well and walk down the street as though you own the world, people will generally accept that. Now, those codes of, of clothing, although they certainly still exist, are not as clear cut and I think also not as advantageous in many cases. That's why I wear a tuxedo every time we podcast. And, and I'm wearing my lovely sequined gown that I save for these special occasions. I think the off-the-shoulder part is especially nice. You would have aspects of class where the like very posh people would always be the villains or like the banker and they'd look down on the working classes. What's interesting in this is Gary Cooper doesn't ever treat Stanwyck like she's stupid because she's lower class. In fact, he doesn't even see her class. He just sees her as a very interesting woman. And my favourite line the whole film is when she tells him she's leaving and she says, oh, you know, well, what about my mind and everything? And he, and he says, I shall regret the absence of your keen mind. Unfortunately, it's inseparable from an extremely disturbing body. Well, and it even takes him a while to see the body. Like when he comes back and is telling the professors about all of his journeys that day, like he's, he's the only one that gets to go outside for something other than the morning constitutional, right? And he comes back and he's telling them about sugar puss and they're like, Oh, were there blondes and brunettes? And, you know, what about these uh, dancers backstage and the smell of rice powder and all this stuff? And he's like, oh, I, I didn't really even notice. And it's like, you are so focused on the language that you didn't even, you know. But he's in awe of her intelligence. And I love that. I absolutely love that. Like, when does that ever happen? I love that it takes him a while to actually see her as a woman. You know, it's kind of nice. He just knows that she's smart and he can learn from her. And I just, I, I really love that aspect of the film. There's like a real, it's not sentimental because Wilder, what do you call it? Like the powder puff comedy hated it. They made him want to vomit. You know, when, when Wilder did comedy, it was always very cynical, but you could tell he really, he, he, the way he wrote men and women, uh, people always talk about the Hawksian woman. And it is an interesting, I do find it fascinating, but women were always really fascinating in Wilder, which had nothing to do with Hawks as, as well. And men were always kind of ridiculous or compromised in some way. He had really interesting ideas about gender, I think, Wilder, which one consistently 
attracted to his work. You can kind of see the seeds of the, you know, the apartment or something in this, like the Jack Lemons kind of. I wouldn't say he's he's completely downtrodden, but he has this sort of compromised masculinity in the, the apartment. It's a lot softer. It's not like it's like he had an antidote to the like macho macho man. So you get that in Gary Cooper, who who was used to playing the kind of macho man. Like he got into films because he was good at riding horses. I think <laughs> he was good in the horse, and you know he had that. He was so tall and so handsome. So to have him playing somebody completely against typing that and for it to work as well. Like I said, though, I think he did really understand timing. I mean, you see it in Bluebeard's Eighth Wife, which was, again, Bracket and Wilder, but uh, done by Lubitsch, where he marries Claudette Colbert in that one. Uh, and she realizes just before they get married that he's already been married seven times. So the whole film is her withholding sex from him because she's mad and him getting more and more insane about it. Like he actually ends up in a straitjacket at one point and they're like, <laughs> she just completely torments him. And again, he just plays it very straight. He just plays it very, very straight. It's, it's so good. The way he looks confused when they're sort of asking him, or, or when she's taking her stockings off and all the other guys are like really going for it. They're like, they're like really, really into it. And he just looks confused for like the first half of the film. He's just like, what are they on about? This woman is a resource. I also have a question that I have to ask, which is how exactly did Gary Cooper's character wind up in that house? All of the rest of the, of the linguists are stereotypical old science guys that clearly spent their lives in libraries, sitting in behind their desks in their home offices, writing feverishly. And then there's Mr. Goddamn, if, if he can walk down the street without heads turning, in this household of old, sad men. How'd that happen? I don't know. He's like striking out for the later nerd guy that you'd see in the 80s, isn't he? He's like a prototype for that. He met them at the library, I imagine, where he spent his whole life because he's just interested in books and he meets one of them maybe and he's like, hey, these are my people. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and live with them. Or maybe Miss Totten put him in there because she needed the eye candy. I got to say, it's kind of an idyllic uh life that he's leading there just like hanging around with a bunch of dudes and uh you know just writing all the time i mean i don't know i don't think much of the way their jams ration though i couldn't cope with that yeah i don't think i could take mrs bragg yeah but they need a firm hand these guys you never know what they're going to get up to if somebody doesn't set the rules and enforce them and clearly she was born to do that yeah, he also is kind of a nerd when he uh, tells uh, Dana Andrews, who he thinks is um, Sugar Puss's dad, oh, in the last election, I voted straight Republican ticket. Oh, my like, God. Oh. That whole conversation is so cringy. It's it brilliant. is. It is super cringy. <laughs> it's just like, oh, my God. Stop. Someone stop him. And Stanwick's face is, wow, throughout the whole thing. She's just kind of wincing. We think of Stanwyck as a real center of all attention actresses because she really, she is, she, she, she was. She, she absolutely held every scene no matter what. But here, I actually like the moments where she's, she's watching 
it's absolutely terrific. Her reactions are very subtle. And yet I think it speaks to what her, one of her greatest strengths as an actress, which was that you can truly read her thoughts on her face. Yeah. She was so expressive. She was, I think she's underrated in a way because she was so versatile. Like her range was all over the place, but it was to do with the, like the, like maintenance said, like you could just see she was so good at projecting emotion and, um, not these stereotypical emotions as well, you know, she could like, she could, the, the way that she emotes in this for the first half of the film, it's like, Oh my God, who are these people? And she's got some of the best resting bitch face. The way her and the Mrs. Bragg size each other up is just like so amazing. And then she'll change her face and she'll put on this fake sort of smiley face for the professors but she's she was always so good at that i think and as much as i love joan crawford you know if you had someone like joan in that role she would she couldn't control it it would be too much but stanwick always knew like she never like overplayed it either there's something really natural about the way she acted of course she came from that background as well she started on as like in dance halls and stuff and you know, she was she was like the working class hero, wasn't she, in real life? And she's got a real set of stems on her, too. Mm, she does. And that brings us back to the drum boogie dress. Uh, you get to see those stems from one end to the other. And, yeah, they are fabulous. I mean, she's using them. And she's blatantly using them. And then, to your point, Kat, kind of starting to see them as other than just a bunch of dupes. And there are several really important moments for her and her character when she decides to lie to Gary Cooper and like, well, when I saw you at the nightclub, I knew that I had to come see you some more and just like laying it on thick with that. And then when he confesses his love to her, then she, you know, starts to really feel bad about herself. And so this is one hell of a performance that she's giving because she could be seen as being a really horrible person the way that she's using them. But you want to like her through the entire thing. Even when she's pulling the wool over their eyes, you're like, Oh yeah, you go girl. This is fantastic. But then, you know, you can empathize with her when she's just like, oh, man, I've been really bad to these people. And the way that they've been treating me has been nice, but I've been bad to them. And really, you can see her when she falls in love with Gary Cooper. You know those moments. You realize that maybe that yum-yum that she was laying on him earlier wasn't all fake. And the next time they yum-yum, it's definitely for real. <laughs> yum-yum. You're even calling it that now. <laughs> A little hoi-toi-toi. And that when, when Professor Adley says hoi-toi-toi, that's when I fell in love with that character. The whole thing about the class stuff, too. The gangsters, even though they are lower class and they, you know, abuse the English language, that whole, like, subpoena thing that they're talking about – which is a real juvenile laugh, I have to say, but it didn't laugh. Ooh, he said supini. It's like you don't hate them necessarily, or you don't hate them because they're lower class, definitely. You hate them when Dana Andrews is trying to force her to marry him rather than Gary Cooper, and it, he's more like suddenly becomes snidely whiplash rather than anything else. It's like, no, no, I'm going to kidnap the girl and have her marry me. It's not because of her father's land. It's because he wants to make sure she can't testify against him, which is kind of an interesting twist to it. 
It's an interesting twist, and it's despicable. It is really despicable. It's nice that you hate him for those things and not because he's just a gangster. And, like, you know he has murdered someone (laughs) because of the pajamas that are left behind, the lilac pajamas. But it's kind of neat the way that they handle these characters. Actually, I have one little thing that I want to ask you guys. Is that the same set in both movies? I don't think it is because I think in this first movie, when he runs up the stairs, there's a single staircase that he runs up and it's more on the, let's say, left side of the screen. Whereas in the Danny Kay version, he runs up a stairwell that's more in the center of the screen and then goes either left or right. And there's the stained glass, which I know you wouldn't really be able to see in black and white, but there's the stained glass of the three figures and you kind of get those in that other room too. The room where they practice, the the main professorial room seems very similar. It really, really looks similar to me, yeah. But it's so weird, and we'll talk about this in a few minutes, but so strange how they reuse so much of the dialogue. I mean, it's some of this is just a carbon copy. Yeah, it is. It's amazing. But that's what they would do in an old Hollywood. Once they got to the silence and they remade all the the silence. I remember when I was researching Bluebeard's Eighth Wife, there was a version of lost version of that with Gloria Swanson, and I could only find like adverts for it. I actually found a a small news clipping with like pictures of the costumes and stuff. And it looked incredible, but they would just like get this property, pay for this property. And then they just reuse it. Like, Oh, we'll just remake this and just give it a different name or not even give it a different name. We call it the same name and we'll get rid of that previous version. We'll just like replacing it. People go on about remakes today, but it's like Hollywood have always shamelessly ripped off their own stuff always always shamelessly done that they they just didn't if something works they would just they would just do it to death i mean how many versions of a star is born on her now five at least maybe more i don't know and the thing is you can't blame them particularly back in that golden era when they were pumping out movies like nobody's business particularly your bottom half of the double bill movies, or you're just generally low budget movies. You know, there was only so much time and certainly only so much money that you had to put together this piece of product, because certainly at at the height of the studio, actually pretty much all the history of the studio era, movies were properties. They were the stuff you made and they were the stuff people bought. So if you wanted people to keep buying, you had to keep making stuff. And sure, there were pictures that you were willing to spend a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of other resources on, but you couldn't make every movie that way. So recycling rampant. Somebody somewhere must have done a study. It must have been actually, there must be multiple studies of costume reuse of how many times you see that dress or how many times you see that particular uniform with that particular set of medals on it. Movies I'm sure there's somebody theater. out there who knows every single, you know, how like obsessive sure. people got, knows every the use of every single prop and every single every time that particular hat with that pheasant feather and that little violet on it showed up in movies from a particular studio because usually those props belong to studios rather than to some general warehouse where everybody went and rented them. 
So yeah. And if nobody's done it, there's a there's a thesis for somebody. Get to work. All right, we're going to take a break and play an interview with Professor Joseph McBride, author of Hawks on Hawks and editor of Focus on Howard Hawks. And we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. The Contractor, starring Chris Pine, is now in theaters and available on digital and on demand. When Pine, as a discharged elite special forces sergeant, is desperate to provide for his family, he contracts with a private military force and unravels a deep conspiracy, sending him on the run for his life. Buy or rent The Contractor and watch it today. Rated R from Paramount Pictures. On the Vintage Video Podcast, we'll be reviewing every single wide release of the 1980s in chronological order. Over 250 episodes to enjoy and thousands more to come. John enters the store now to order another can of ether. I picture him outside like Homer with the gas hall. <laughs> when for you, when for me. I also like to think about it, that the kids renew their vow not to talk about the murder. By, by murdering someone. <laughs> They're taking a blood oath with someone else's blood. This stuff is seven times more powerful than uranium. And yeah. they, they open up the vault that it's contained in, not wearing any kind of protective nope. gear. Yeah. And it's wooden crates. Wooden crates. It's like the guys in Chernobyl picking up the graphite rocks yeah. and going, man, eh, because there's rocks. Hugging the elephant foot. Just <laughs> like, oh, this thing's smooth. It's so warm. He turns to dial the number from the classified ad without even thinking about the numbers. <laughs> we know this because we can hear his thoughts. And he's talking about how AJ was right that ninjas are misdirecting him. They're misdirecting him. I really wish that he'd turn to the phone and be like, six, six, five, five. <laughs> no, that's two, that's two, five. Vintage Video. We're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. Every passenger has a motive. Based on Agatha Christie's beloved novel and featuring a dazzling all-star cast, Death on the Nile will keep you guessing all the way to its final shocking conclusion. Add the critically acclaimed murder mystery to your movie collection today and enjoy deleted scenes, behind-the-scenes featurettes, and more. Available now on 4K Ultra HD, Blu-ray, and digital. Tell me about that relationship between Wilder and Howard Hawks and how you got interested in writing about Howard Hawks. Well, Howard Hawks is somebody I admire a lot. He wasn't one of my, you know, handful of favorite directors. I met my three favorite directors my first week in Hollywood in 1970. I went there to interview John Ford, who's my favorite, and I met John Renoir the same day, and then I met Orson Welles a couple days later, and I was acting in a film of his by the end of the week. It was kind of astonishing. And I also met Peter Bogdanovich, who I admired, and I wanted to kind of be like him as a young critic turned filmmaker. And it was all the first week, and I thought every week in Hollywood would be like this, but I didn't realize this, this was the pinnacle. It's all been downhill ever since, you know. But anyway, that week was wonderful. But when I moved to Hollywood in 73, I was trying to be a screenwriter and it took me 10 years to sell a script. And then I started selling them. And for seven years, I was working screenwriter. And then I 
got tired of the way writers are treated in Hollywood, even though I won a Writers Guild Award and had Emmy nominations and things. And I, I just didn't find it a congenial job generally, although I liked writing the AFI shows. I wrote five of those Life Achievement Award shows, which were great because I got to interview and write for a lot of legendary stars and directors whom a young young writer normally wouldn't work with. But in 84, I decided to retire from the film business and, and become a full-time book writer with the Capra book. But all that experience fed into the biographies I've done on Capra, Ford, and Spielberg, etc. Anyway, so when I came to Hollywood in 73, I'd already met Hawks at the Chicago Film Festival in 1970. Uh, my late friend, Mike Wilmington, who I wrote a John Ford uh, critical study with, he and I went there and we met Hawks and I recorded the, inter the audience discussion, published it in Sight and Sound. And he was such a fascinating raconteur and he knew so much about storytelling. He was a great storyteller, great director, a director of actors as well, like Capra and other people are. And uh, so when I went to Hollywood as a screenwriter, I wanted to learn from Hawks because I thought, who better to teach me about screenwriting? And he worked with a lot of the greatest screenwriters, Ben Heck, Charles MacArthur, Jules Firthman, uh, William Faulkner, Lee Brackett, etc. So I would go to Palm Springs and interview Hawks. And, and that led to some public appearances with him where I would do Q&As with him over the next uh, three years. And he actually came to the first film class I taught in 1975 at Sherwood Oaks Experimental College in Hollywood. The class on international film directors, our guests were Howard Hawks, Fritz Lang, Roman Polanski, Bob Rafelson, and Maximilian Schell. How's that? For wow. <laughs> That's quite a lineup. Yeah, two Pantheon directors and three other really interesting directors. And so uh, Hawks and I became friendly, and I did. And then by 77, I became aware that I was getting, I wasn't planning to write a book on him, but I kind of thought, hmm, Truffaut told me, I knew Truffaut really well, and he said, somebody should do a book on Hawks like the one I did on Hitchcock. And I, I was already kind of doing it without knowing it, but then I began thinking, well, you know, I should put this all together in a book. And then the Directors Guild asked me to host a weekend with Howard Hawks and his films in 77 at a hotel in Southern California. So I had three days with him, and I decided to use that as a kind of, you know, asking him questions I hadn't asked before to help round out you know, the whole interview. And then he died two months later, and I didn't, too busy writing scripts to put it together. And then I thought, well, let's let's put it together. And I, I collated, transcribed all the interviews, and I edited them very freely because he told the same stories a lot. And I'd have five versions of the same story, and I'd take the highlights of each one and put it together. It's kind of in partly thematic form. It was published in 82 as Hawks on Hawks by University of California Press. And it was in five languages. It's done very well. And then it was in print for a long time. And then they let it go out of print and University of Press of Kentucky brought it back in paperback and it's available now. I actually, I left out, I had done a book called Focus on Howard Hawks in 72. It was a collection of articles about Hawks for Prentice Hall, they had a series focus on so-and-so, and that gave me some credentials with Hawks. He was grateful for that book and, and helped help get me in to talk to him, you know? Tell me a little bit more about Ball of Fire and how that came about. Ironically, I'm not as big in Hawks comedies as I am on his so-called adventure films. They tend to fall in those two categories, but I mean, his adventure films are very funny, they have a lot of humor, like Rio Bravo, Atari, El Dorado, uh, often very funny films, but they have a kind of more dramatic underpinning. His comedies tend to be very zany, uh, screwball kind of films, like Bringing Up Baby, which I actually don't like very much. The reason is Jacques Rivette 
wrote a piece called The Genius of Howard Hawks, which is about monkey business, which I think is pretty good. And he said that he can't laugh at Hawks' comedies because I translated this article with Russell Campbell for Focus on Howard Hawks, and it's online. You can read it. He said, I can't join in the laughter that audiences have because his films are about the degradation of a superior intellect. And I really think that's true. He usually takes some kind of intellectual, you know, like an academic or a a scientist or somebody, and and he uh, shows them humiliated in every way, usually by a woman. And and he's reduced to, I mean, you know, bringing a baby, Cary Grant is a paleontologist. He's reduced to crawling around on his hands and knees in, in the woods and Peter Bogdanovich said to Hawks, how come the lighting is so dark in the later part of the film? And Hawks said, well, it wasn't very funny for Kerry crawling around on his hands and knees looking for a bone, was it? And that's the problem I have with the film. It's not funny. It's just not funny to see this man being reduced to a gibbering. uh... I mean, Catherine Hepburn in that film is so irritating to me. She drives me crazy. And I don't get the the love that people have for that film, I'm sorry. But Ball of Fire is a very warm, gentle film, and I, I attribute that to Brackett and Wilder. Charles Brackett and Billy Wilder wrote this wonderful screenplay. Wilder had written the story with a writer named Thomas Monroe at Paramount. It was called From A to Z, but Wilder says he first started thinking of the story back in Germany, and then he came to America, and then he, he wrote it up, and then they sold it to Hawks. And was made for the Goldwyn Studios. And Wilder had it in his contract since he wanted to resume his directing career that he would get to be on the set every day and watch Hawks direct. And he told me he learned an awful lot from watching Hawks. And I said, unfortunately, I preempted his response. I said, what did you learn from Hawks? Technique? And he said, yeah, technique. He was a very good director. I wish I had just said, what did you learn from Hawks? And then let him say what he had to say. He claimed he didn't have a lot in common with the themes of Fox's work, but he admired his style. There, there's a great comment from Don Siegel, who, uh, let me just read this for you. It's, I love this comment. Don Siegel is another director I admired a lot, and I interviewed him. He, he loved Hawks, and he said he looks like a director, he acts like a director, he talks like a director, and he's a damn good director. <laughs> <laughs> so he really was efficient and, and great with actors, and Wilder was there watching. And But it, it has a warmth and gentleness. And it's about a bunch of intellectuals again. There are a bunch of professors who are writing a, an encyclopedia, and they're all in a brownstone in New York. And Wilder said it's kind of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Snow White is ironically not very snowy, but she's Barbara Stanwyck, who's, who's a kept woman of a gangster and she's a chorus girl but she comes into their lair she's trying on the lamb and gary cooper falls in love with her and she's conning him which is a very wilder theme and he's betrayed by her but he still loves her and it's 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 very sweet and there's as robin wood said it's much more relaxed and gentle than the usual hawks film partly because he's dealing with old older people and hawks said that to me you know he said I mean, there's a rare sentimental scene where they all sing Genevieve, which is a favorite song of John Ford about memory of a woman used to, who died, who you loved. And they all sing Genevieve in tribute to this professor who's a widower. And I said to Hawks, that's a rare sentimental scene in your work. And he said, well, when you deal with old people, you can afford to be sentimental, you know. That gives an example of why it's different. And it's it's charming and it's not nasty. It's it's funny, and and the professors all outwit the bad guys. These gangsters come in, and try to take over, and it it's, has to do with fascism to some extent. There are references to fascism taking over the world, and the gangsters are 
allegorical representations of fascist powers, and uh, the, it's about how intellectuals can, who believe in democracy and group effort can defeat fascism. And so it has a lot going for it, and it's a brilliantly witty script because Gary Cooper is writing the entry on slang. And my first book that I wrote was called High and Inside, an A to Z Guide to the Language of Baseball. It's about baseball slang. So I was interested in slang and etymology from an early age. I wrote that when I was in high school and college. And as Gary Cooper realizes his knowledge of slang is outmoded because he's he's too insular. So he goes out in the streets and talks to regular people and and invites some of them in. And that's and then he goes. That's how he meets Barbara Stanwyck and she educates him on language. So it's full of puns and wordplay and fascinating tales of etymology and just an extremely erudite witty screenplay hawks was full of admiration for bracket and wilder and one difference between capra and hawks which is very important capra would always put down his screenwriters and try to claim you know that he wrote the scripts with them even if it wasn't really true and then he later in life tried to start taking credit for scripts and he alienated all the good writers and then at one point he said, I'll never work with another liberal writer again when he got in trouble politically. And if you do that, you can't work with 95% of the writers in Hollywood, you know. He started working mostly with Miles Connolly, who's a far-right anti-communist nut. But Hawks was smart enough. I said to him, most of your pictures hold up really well today. Why do you think they last? He said, because I have such good writers. That's why they last. You know, Hawks was big enough, and this is very smart, to share the credit. And it doesn't take much to share the credit because it's not a zero-sum game to say that I had good writers, great cinematographer, great actors. You know, why not? It's a collaborative medium. When I, I edited two books for the American Film Institute called uh, Filmmakers and Filmmaking, which were based on their seminars. And I read all their seminar transcripts, five million pages. Very interesting. And I chose as the epigraph <clears throat> a quote from the great director, Alan Pakula, who made All the President's Men and other Airlocks view, etc. He said, "Why well, the worst thing about filmmaking is collaborative art, and the best thing about filmmaking is that it's a collaborative art." And so both are true, you know. But Capra thought it was terrible to have to share credit with people. So, you know, I said to Hawks, "In your early films, you do take writing credit occasionally, and then you stop doing that. Why is that?" And he said, uh, "Because I realized that if I, I did take credit, I couldn't get such good writers to work with me." And that's a smart guy. You know, so he works with Ben Hecht and Charles MacArthur and Jules Firthman, who Pauline Kael, who I hate to perpetuate by quoting, but she had a good comment. She said Jules Firthman and Ben Hecht together wrote about half of the good movies ever made in Hollywood. It's slightly exaggerated, but pretty true. Jules Firthman is an unsung great screenwriter and he pops up all over the place and he worked on a lot of Hawks films and Hawks had some amazing people like to have and have not. He told Hemingway I want to make a film of your worst novel. Of course, Hemingway was offended, and he said, what's my worst novel? Hawk said, that piece of junk called To Have and Have Not. And Hemingway said, well, I just wrote it because I needed money. And Hawks did a very clever thing. He invited him on his boat to go fishing for two weeks, and he pumped Hemingway for the backstory of the characters. Hawks said he wasn't as interested in the plot as the two characters and how they met. And so Hemingway gave him a lot of ideas. And then Hawks told me to irritate Hemingway, he hired William Faulkner to work on the script. Faulkner worked on a lot of Hawks scripts. Hawks was very important in keeping Faulkner solvent by having him in Hollywood working on films. He didn't make a lot of money from his novels, but he made good money in Hollywood. Then he 
work on his novels. And anyway, Faulkner worked on the script with Jules Frithman and Lee Brackett, and she was a young science fiction writer. Agent recommended her, and Hawks told me he thought he was hiring a man, Lee Brackett, and a young woman walked in, but he was egalitarian enough to say, okay, you know, she's a good writer. But I said, how, how does she write? And he says, she, she writes like a man. She writes good. He's an interesting case because his films can be seen as feminist in some ways, but in some ways, the, the women in his films are very strong and interesting, but they're kind of like one of the boys, you know, they're, they're kind of semi-masculine, but that's interesting too. But he's not interested in mothers and older women, et cetera. He's just interested in women who could do what men do. But that creates a lot of great characters like Rosalind Russell and his girl Friday, for example, and Lauren Bacall and To Have and Have Not. Anyway, so you got this amazing screenplay on To Have and Have Not. And then Brackett also wrote To the Big Sleep with Faulkner and Frithman, and that's based on the, the Chandler novel, another wonderful screenplay. And Hawks told me, I interviewed him for like seven years, and he said, you know, a lot of people point out the plot of The Big Sleep is almost impossible to understand. And he said, I learned from doing that. It really doesn't matter because... He says, if you have three great scenes and you don't offend the audience with the rest of it, you're, you're made, you know, and people often quote that. And I said to him, what do you do if you have a scene that isn't very good? He said, oh, I make it go as fast as possible so they don't notice, you know. And so he's full of wisdom. And let me read a quote. I asked Truffaut for a comment for the book, and he said, well, I'll point you to an interview I did with a magazine called Grand Illusions. And. He said, just run this quote and read it here. He says, something I feel that's very interesting with Hawks is that in all these interviews, he always criticizes, he raps the intellectuals. And in my opinion, he's one of the most intellectual filmmakers in America. He often speaks in terms of film concepts. He has many general theories. He doesn't belong to the school of instinctive filmmakers. He thinks of everything he does. Everything is thought out. So somebody ought to tell him one day that despite himself, he's intellectual and that he has to accept that. Hawks didn't really have a problem remaking himself that, you know, things like you know, El Dorado is pretty darn close to Rio Bravo, but then that he actually does a literal remake of himself with Ball of Fire and then a song is born. That's key to Hawks. And some people think it's a strength and some people think it's a deficiency. I mean, anti-auteurists say, well, you know, the auteurists reward directors for just repeating themselves. There is some truth to that, that if you look for consistency of approach, Hawks certainly is very consistent. The kinds of films that he does are very consistent over the years. And, and I point out in my book, Hawks and Hawks, that is a limitation to some extent. He doesn't have as wide a range as, say, Ford or George Cukar, for example is a director with a very wide range, and he doesn't repeat himself a lot. He has, has a style that's harder to define, but Hawks' style is very clear. But yeah, Rio Bravo, I should mention, you asked in, in our Capra interview, what was my first experience with Capra? My first experience with Hawks was very important to me. Rio Bravo, I saw when I was 12, came out in 59, and I went to my local theater in Wauwatosa, Wisconsin to see it. And I went because I was a fan of John Wayne, and I also was a fan of Ricky Nelson, who was big on TV on that Ozzy and Harriet show, and he would sing at the end of every episode. And I didn't know who Howard Hawks was, and I just, I was floored by this film because, you know, Dean Martin is plays an alcoholic. He's just great, very realistic. 
And my parents were both alcoholics. So every day at home, I had to live with this hellish environment that they both got drunk at night and scream at each other. And it went on every, every single night. And it was a tough environment. And I'd never seen a realistic portrayal of an alcoholic on screen until I saw Dean Martin. He totally nailed it. And then there's that great scene when he pours the drink back into the bottle. There's a very good song that he sings with Dean Martin and Walter Brennan, which some people criticize because, you know, they sit and sing a song. Well, why not? I mean, you know, people in the old days before TV, that's what people did. They entertained themselves at home. They play music, sing songs, they tell stories. You know, in some countries, they still do that. Then radio came along and, and TV and, and kind of killed that whole thing. And But back in the West, why not sing a song? But it's Hawk said, when you have a personality, you should use it. And here's a personality who could sing. And of course, Dean Martin is a great singer. And then having Walter Brennan chime in is funny. And John Wayne is standing aloof from them. Robin Wood analyzes that scene very well in his two books on Hawks. And one is a monograph in Rio Bravo. And he said there's a poignancy to the shots of John Wayne that he's part of the group, but he's isolated from it because he's the leader, but also he can't sing. John Hawk said to me, have you ever heard Duke sing? He's he's really bad. <laughs> you know. Duke sings at the end of Ford's Quiet Man. It's funny because he and Victor McLaughlin are both drunk and they're singing the wild colonial boy, but boy, Duke is a bad singer, you know. <laughs> I was just say that El Dorado is probably my favorite Hawks film, even though I, I think Rio Bravo is great perfect film i just love el dorado so i don't mind that he remade it as in a sense because you know i said to hawks and he got sort of testy i said what do you say when people say you remake your some of your films he said well it's not really a remake because it's a twist you know like in rio bravo the the drunk is a, a deputy but in El Dorado, the drunk is the sheriff. And, you know, I mean, he, tw- he twists things around. He said, when we were writing the original, we had different ideas. And he said, Jen- Ricky Nelson was a great shot. And so they said, let's, in the second one, let's make a boy who can't shoot, you know, James Kahn. And that's a great source of humor. The guy can't shoot. And John Wayne has to get him in this sawed off shotgun that he uses to shoot people. And he has a knife, he uses a knife. So in other words, themes and variations is what Hawks talks about. And, you know, a school of thought that, I mean, there are only seven basic stories in literature, and everything is a variation on something else. And uh, so I, I think it's perfectly legitimate. Also, you're dealing with genres. And Jean Renoir told me a wonderful thing. He said, the marvelous thing about Westerns is they're all the same story. That gives the director unlimited freedom, he said. The third time he did it, Real Lobo was not as good, but you know, there are different problems with casting, etc. But I think El Dorado is just great. But to Ball of Fire, Song is Born is not a good film, and Wilder and Brackett didn't put their names in the screenplay, even though it's based on their screenplay. Oh, I mean, I asked Hawks, why did you do Song is Born? He said, because I got $25,000 a week to do it, that's why. <laughs> and he said, Sam Goldwyn asked him to do it, and they, they had a, a kind of interesting idea, let's make it into a musical. Danny Kay is a musicologist. And uh, there is one really wonderful segment where a bunch of great jazz musicians come into their house and they do this fantastic piece called The the Story of Jazz, which is just a great musical number. And you have Louis Armstrong and Charlie Barnett and Benny Goodman and Lionel Hampton. I mean, oh my gosh, it's just sublime. And Hawks is so great filming musical numbers because of the group harmony. Musical numbers in Hawks are always expressions of group solidarity and affection. But aside from that, it's a very kind of uninspired, dull film. It's in color. 
Greg Tolan shot it in color. In some ways, I told Hawks, the other thing that is good is the ending is somewhat better in terms of pacing. And the way the, the professors out with the gangsters is, is somewhat better done. And Hawks said, I agree with you. But he said the problem was for him, Danny Kay was having kind of a nervous breakdown at the time because he and his wife were breaking up. And he said Danny Kay was stopping work twice a day to see a psychiatrist. And he, he said he was about as funny as a crutch, which is true. He's very unfunny and he looks very depressed and no, no charm. And then Virginia Mayo, I said to Hawks, what do you think of her? And he said, pathetic. You know, what they did was, and this is sort of cruel, Sam Goldwyn made her watch Ball of Fire and over, over and over again to try to imitate Stanwyck. And Stanwyck is so great in the original, and she's a great, great actress. And Virginia Mayo is a limited actress, but looking at it again, I thought she's not actually that bad. She gives a creditable performance, but she's no Barbara Stanwyck, and she, she's not a first-rate star, and she lacks the charisma of a great star. And so it's a dispiriting remake, and that's, you know... Hawks kind of just doing it as a job. Professor McBride, you always have so many things going on. Can you tell me what's been happening with you lately? Yeah, right at the moment, I'm not working on a book because I'm too busy talking about four books that I've published since October. <laughs> it's been a very busy period for me. And I'm also teaching full time at San Francisco State University, which is fun. I'm teaching my basic screenwriting class, which I always do. I'm teaching a class on how to write about films. We're using Truffaut's Fahrenheit 451 is the example, and it's one of my favorite films. Also teaching a class on Orson Welles, who I've done three books on, so it's, it's fun. But the four books I've done recently, Billy Wilder, Dancing on the Edge, a critical study, very big book, very long in the works. It's kind of an outgrowth of my book, How Did Lubitsch Do It? I originally started, I had this idea that I could do Lubitsch and Wilder together, because Wilder is Lubitsch's most famous devoted acolyte. But I realized after about a year that they're very different as well as similar. Wilder was trying to do Lubitsch his whole career, and he finally succeeded wonderfully, I think, with Avanti. But he made some films that were not as adept at doing Lubitsch. But he's, he has his own very different style. I love Wilder. So I, I broke off the Wilder stuff, and I went back to it. And he had a very long career. That a lot of people don't know about his early work in um, German films as a screenwriter, and then he worked in France briefly as a writer-director on one film and co-directed a film. And then he came to Hollywood, and he was a journeyman screenwriter for a number of years before he got his big break with Lubitsch, and they did Ninochka together. And that vaulted him in the first rank of screenwriters. But all these films that he did before that were, you know, a hodgepodge of things, And but people hadn't studied him much. They studied the works of that he directed, you know, but I'm always interested in how artists develop. Also, his journalism, I'm an old reporter, and when I met Wilder on the set of his film about reporters, the front page, he hit it off right away because journalists kind of talk the same language. And so he did a lot of journalism in Vienna and Berlin, and there, there are two books, collections of his work in each city, and I, I read them in German, and they're very interesting. And after I finished my book, just the very end came along an American edition in English. It's a collection of some of the works, but I studied it at great lengths his, his excellent reporting and how that influenced his work. And I, he saw himself mainly as a writer, so I traced that evolution. Then I come to his films as a Hollywood director, writer, and he made 25 films and a lot of great films, Sunset Boulevard, Ace in the Hole, uh, The Apartment. I just did audio commentaries for some like it hot in the apartment, two of my favorite films for Kino Lorber 
and I've done six other Wilder films, I believe. And I wrote this big uh, critical study, Billy Wilder, Dancing on the Edge. And then I did a book, that another long germinating film, a book called Political Truth, The Media and the Assassination of President Kennedy. Very ambitious book. Very proud of it. I've been studying the assassination since 1961, which is two years before it happened. Sounds strange, but I wrote a short story about it as a high school student at Marquette University High School in Milwaukee because I was a volunteer in Kennedy's Wisconsin primary campaign in 1960, and I met him a couple of times. I was struck by his lack of security, and I was a student of the Lincoln assassination. I was concerned about his safety, and my father was a reporter on the Milwaukee Journal in 1962. Another event where I met Kennedy when he was president, my dad had time for one question of him at a reception. He said, uh, do you ever worry about being assassinated? And Kennedy said, yeah, I'm aware that it could happen, but I just can't think of it because if I did, I couldn't do my job. It's an interesting comment. And maybe he should have thought about it more because there are a lot of warning signs. Anyway, so when he was shot, I was not totally surprised, but it changed my whole life. And I've been studying it ever since. And I did a book in 2013 called Into the Nightmare, My Search for the Killers of President John F. Kennedy and Officer J.D. Tippett, a big book summarizing all my research. And then I, I wanted to do a chapter on the media response, because the mainstream media have been lying about the case ever since 63 and claiming one guy did it alone, and I don't believe Oswald did it. It was a plot, complex plot, and uh, alternative media that are exploring the truth, investigating it in blogs, small magazines, books, films, etc. So I, I did this book, Political Truth, to make a grand view of the how the media have dealt with it. In, in all its facets. And I think my experience as a journalist since 1960, you know, the first article I published was in May of 1960, the first article I got paid for. And the same week, I got a letter from Kennedy, Senator Kennedy thanking me for my work on the campaign. So I think that's kind of an interesting congruence. But So that book came out in December, and then I did an updated edition of Whatever Happened to Orson Welles, The Portrait of an Independent Career, which I wrote in 2006. And this is the first paperback publication from the University Press of Kentucky. And I did an epilogue about the final completion of The Other Side of the Wind, which was Wells's testament film, but the old Hollywood meets the new Hollywood, which I acted in from 1970 to 76. And that was an amazing experience, a Walter Mitty kind of experience for a young film writer. I just just about finished my first critical study of him for British film student. He put me in this film playing kind of a spoof of myself. And so I was able to observe him at close range. And I think he put me in there partly to have a historian on the set because so many myths and lies have been printed about him. He wanted quite often when he was shooting a scene, he would call me over and tell me why he was doing something. And it was very interesting. So I, I, I wrote a piece, an epilogue that talks about the completion of the film and my analysis of it. And, about a third of the book is on the making of the film and my attempts and other people's attempts to finish it. And I also dealt with Too Much Johnson, which is an early Wells film that was miraculously rediscovered in 2005 in a warehouse in Italy, of all places. We thought we'd never see this film. It's a, it's a rough-cut slapstick comedy that he made in 1938 for a stage production of this play, Too Much Johnson, by William Gillette. And he didn't finish the film for a variety of reasons, so they had to put the play on without the film footage, and the play was not successful in out-of-town tryouts, so it never got to Broadway. But the footage disappeared and the resurfaced, so 
kind of bookends Wells's career, even though he did films before Too Much Dancing and after Other Side of the Wind for nine years. He kept making other films. Some of them are still coming out, but it gives a kind of a early and late perspective on Wells. So I, I did an epilogue on that. And then I just had a book published, a critical study of the Coen brothers called The Whole Dern Human Comedy, Life According to the Coen Brothers, which I had fun, a lot of fun writing. I had a real ball doing that. I think they're the sons of Billy Wilder, in a sense. They're great social satirists, and they blend genres daringly like Wilder did. And they're they're wonderful comic directors, and they deal with violence, and they deal with all kinds of problems in our society. And they're very beloved by a lot of people and have a lot of acclaim, but they have their detractors, too. And so I felt they're kind of misunderstood in some ways. And so I, that's why I write books. Either there's an injustice that needs to be corrected or there's a misunderstanding that needs to be corrected. Why else do a book? You know, so I find I, it was this very free-flowing book. I write it thematically rather than chronologically, which is how I also followed Wilder's Hollywood career, and I think it is a useful way to write film criticism because I'm tired of the chronological approach. I think there's some benefits from going thematically. So I did that, and I also added a chapter on The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which is a culminating work of sorts for them. It's sort of it's an anthology of Western tales, six of them, and it kind of draws from all their different modes of storytelling. And now they're working apart for a while, and it's not certain what they will do in the future. Joel Cohen did Tragedy of Macbeth, which I like. They may or may not work together again, but as Joel said recently, when we started working, we didn't think we'd have a 40-year career as a brother team. You know, we just started making films, and you know, it just sort of happened that they kept getting hired together. And they've written a number of scripts that haven't been filmed, so we may see more Cohen brothers films. But Ethan is writing plays and short stories again. But anyway, that, that book is, is a delight. And I've always wanted to write a short book. In my early days, I wrote shorter books, and then they became longer and longer. I think as you get older, you see more nuances and complexities in life. And But I, I was able to distill my thoughts into a book that's just about 100 pages long, and people enjoy it. Professor McBride, it is always a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for all your time tonight. Thank you, Mike. It's a delight talking to you. You're so, so good uh, with uh, your knowledge of film history and you ask challenging questions, which make me think I really appreciate that.
I'm going to show you what yum yum is. Hmm? Here's yum. Here's the other yum. And here's yum yum. It's another Samuel Goldwyn goodie. For when a good little boy meets a girl with ideas, it's yummy, yummy entertainment. For the first time, Samuel Goldwyn brings together top names playing in one band, an all-American musical aggregation that sets the pace for an exciting romantic escapade. Would you yummy just once more? Right, we are back, and we are talking about Ball of Fire. And speaking of remakes, Howard Hawks loved to remake his own work, including Ball of Fire. So 1941, Ball of Fire. 1948, A Song is Born, Not a Star is Born. And this time, we are visiting a smaller group of professors who aren't, to me, as interesting as the previous professors. We do have some of the same actors. I believe it's the same Mrs. Bragg's in here. And rather than writing just an encyclopedia, it's an encyclopedia about music and a also a album set that will be coming out with this. And our main person, what is it? He's got a crazy name in this one. It's uh, Professor Hobart Frisbee, played by Danny Kay. He has missed the boat when it comes to, quote unquote, folk music. And so now he has to hear all about uh, jive, bebop, rebop, scat, blah, blah, blah. They have like a whole thing that they will say. My skin is just crawling with you. <laughs> I'm sorry, I slacked out not watching this one. Which is, like, I've seen most of Hawks' films, but if I have seen this one, I've blanked it out. So, but just the thought of, like, Danny Kay trying to be down with the kids, I just, no. <laughs> no. Well, and that he's playing it uptight the whole time. Like, he only cuts loose, maybe, two or three times. There's only one moment in this whole film once uh, Virginia Mayo as Honey Swanson, once he realizes that he's in love with her, then he becomes this kind of like space case and he's makes this coffee where he pours the coffee inside of the sugar and he's mixing with uh, a pickle and is um, shuffling toast and stuff. And I'm just like, okay, this is the only real, to me, Danny K moment of the whole movie. The rest of the time, it could be anybody else playing that role. So Maitland, I know you watched this one. What did you think of A Song Was Born? I actually have to confess right now that I did not see the end of A Song Is Born. I just didn't get through it fast enough mostly because I'm launching a Substack newsletter that well that I would actually like to talk to talk about at some point. I ran into some technical problems on that just ate up an enormous amount of time that I should have been spending watching the end of this movie. Having said that, god damn did I hate it. I feel relieved now. I always feel guilty if I can't get to Mike's other Dropbox features, but now I feel like I made the right choice there. Part of my problem with the song is born is that I hate Danny Kay. Yeah, same. I'm so glad it's not just me. Sometimes I feel like I'm unfair, but there's just something about like he's smug, he's smug, 
there's just something about him. It's like, why are you here? You're not talented. You'll get all the Danny Kay fans writing in now <laughs> in the comment. How dare you? How dare you? All two of them. But he's smug and and he's kind of, oh, I just look at him and I was saying to Mike earlier, White Christmas, him and Bing Crosby, when they start singing, like, I, I just want to, I just want to knock them out. I just want someone to make it stop. Danny Kay has the most punchable face ever. The minute he gets a close up, I want to pull back my fist and punch my screen. He's just smug and insipid and incredibly irritating. And that's a real problem playing this character because this character already, he, he's not instantly likable. You know, he's, he is judgmental and repressed irritating in the way that certain kinds of academics can be so irritating that you really do want to hit them because they bring this air of superiority to what I'm thinking, especially of conversations that I had at various times in my career in in education. You just want to say, who do you think you are? What's your problem? We're supposed to be having an exchange of ideas here. I'm not in one of your lecture halls. I don't know, him and Bing Crosby, they kind of came to film a little bit later on, and it was all about the star, wasn't it? The big star, the music star, and they were kind of mediocre, middle of the road, and not very interesting. It's just like, you know, the whole vehicle, this whole weighty vehicle to promote them and their music and slot everything else around them. Yeah, they represent something to me that I find really distasteful. Maybe my dad, because my dad was like one of the original rock and roll generations and literally hated that generation of pre-rock and roll pop. So maybe it comes from there. But Malin is right. I, I just have to look at Danny Kay's face and I want to punch it in. Which I won't disagree about his very punchable face. There are interesting aspects to this. One of the professors is actually played by Benny Goodman. So he gets to jam out quite a bit with the likes of Tommy Dorsey, Louis Armstrong, Lionel Hampton. I know, much more talented people, much more talented people than Danny Kay. And then I want to say that Gene Krupa even comes back in this one as well. So it's those segments are very good. Uh, Bubbles and Buck, the musical act, they're in here. They are window washers, so rather than a garbage man, they're the ones that come in and talk about the Quizola on the radio. But it, it's so strange because there are s- whole segments in here that are right out of the first one, even to the point... So with the first one, everything relies on language. So like at one point... Uh, the Barbara Stanwyck character calls the Gary Cooper character Crab Apple Annie. And so he, you know, it takes him a second, but he finally realizes, oh, by that you're implying that I'm, you know, stodgy and stuck up and all these things. Well, the same thing happens in here where Virginia Mayo calls Danny K Crab Apple Annie. And then he's like, oh, by saying that you imply, and I'm like, no, 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 you, don't rely on language in this one as much as you should be relying on music, but they're so beholden to the first one that they can't rip some of those things out. There are segments like them singing Genevieve in this one, which actually makes a little bit more sense, but I love that moment in the the first movie where it's like, oh, okay, they're using music again in this, but yeah, there are a lot of parts where it's just like, 
wow, this is just a carbon copy of this. And the, the only thing that I think works a little bit better in this one than the first one is we tighten up the third act a little bit. They don't have the Freudian stuff in here about the ring, which is interesting because rather than... I like the Freudian stuff. No, no, I'm saying I like the Freudian stuff a lot. And I really like the whole thing of like, oh, don't you see, dear boy, she gave back you know, lilac's ring, but she kept yours. And that whole thing of the inscription is fantastic. They tighten that up a little bit because they have the Joe Lilac character actually go to the house. And so they have the whole thing of, we're going to knock this thing off onto these gangsters heads. And they use sympathetic rhythms with that rather than the lens. Um, and then the Dana Andrews type character is in the front room, trying to do the marriage at the same time. So they tighten that a little bit, but also they don't have like, uh, I love how Gary Cooper is reading the whole battling book to know how to box and that he's using the old school boxing stuff. And this one, Danny K still punches the bad guy in the nose. And I'm just like, wait a second. No, you didn't read the book. Like, I love that Gary Cooper has to read a book to know how to fight. Does Danny K get punched in the face though? He doesn't go down like Gary Cooper went down. He God is much sake. more like he, even he give us that. Yeah, he, he, that. he gets on that bad guy a lot quicker. And yeah, the gangsters aren't as colorful. I love the fighting scene in the original. Isn't it nice? The way he's, the way he's doing the arms like a Victorian boxer or something. He just looks so tall and lanky. And they're all and- looking confused. Everybody's just, there's so much of that. You know, like um, Ricky Gervais would use in The Office later on. He usually got like David Brent acting the twat, and he's not actually that funny himself, but the people's reactions to him are funny. And you have that in the original Ball of Fire, like much earlier on, just people's faces when, you know, especially or usually when Gary Cooper's doing or saying something. In the whole fight scene where they're just all kind of looking at him like, what the hell? Like, Donna Andrews can't even punch him. She's just like, what is happening here? I just love the bit with the rings. Oh, here's the great big gangster ring. And here's the little bitty besser ring. It's like, ah, guys, we're having a dick measuring contest right now. Ridiculous. Make no mistake, dick measuring metaphors can be very funny, but they're not funny here. They're just, it's just so obvious. And I, I won't even say crude. It's not crude or coarse. It, it just kind of flops over and lies there. And there's a big close up, great big ring. And it's, I don't know, it, it's very unsubtle. Frankly, all fire is very subtle in a lot of ways. It's comedy. It's certainly not, it's not in any way reluctant to land that line. But it's not obvious in that way. And all of the obviousness for me is made worse in the song is born by the color. I, I find that color kind of painful. It's too bright, too saturated. It actually detracts from the film for me. I think that was the thing with Wilder, though, and Brackett as well. And obviously Wilder came out of the school of Lubitsch was his sense of subtlety, I think, because he was European and European humor tends to be more uh, ironic or, or cynical or subtle. 
that he would use that he would use that a lot and i think from hearing about this remake i think it really is a case in point for why bracket and wilder's scripts and then wilder's later films were the best from that era because nothing was ever overstated you know there's there's lines in all of his films where you suddenly have this light bulb moment like oh my god like actually they weren't talking about that they were talking about this it's just so sophisticated I think that that was his like European touch on things. Same with Lou Bridge was always very kind of understated, wasn't he? So it is something they bought. Europeans brought. I'm saying these films are like so American, but of course half of the writing team is Austrian. So he had the sort of advantage of looking from the outside, looking in. Uh, so perhaps he noticed these things more about the culture. Or it fascinated him more than, I guess, if you're of the culture, you tend to take more for granted, don't you? Whereas he had an eye for things that were really interesting about American people. Uh, but subtlety was, I think, once Wilder gets out of the Hays Code, and don't get me wrong, I absolutely love Buddy Buddy, right? But he hated that film. But once he gets out of the Hays Code and into the 70s, his films become less subtle feel slightly less wilder in a way they're they're kind of still Billy wilder but they're not if that makes sense kind of starts to happen after fortune cookie around fortune cookie they become much less subtle and i much prefer wilder when he's speaking between the lines because i just i just appreciate that more it's much more intelligent you know it's funny i saw buddy buddy when it was first released theatrically and i went to see it primarily because klaus kinski was in it and I hated that movie so much that I have never seen it again. Oh my god, I love it! I love it. It's so, but it's so not Wilder. It's strange. It kind of is, but it isn't. You know, he reuses some of his greatest hits, but you know, you got Klaus Kinski wearing a woman's melted down wedding ring that he's having an affair with in a like phallic necklace and stuff. It's like really kind of crude and wearing this like little jogging suit and stuff and doing this little press up i remember that so vividly yeah it's so much fun but it's not as subtle as this like earlier like this is when wilder was obviously on fire and starting to go into his own films when did he make the major and the minor was that 42 is it it was around this time he made the the major and the minor where the the film where Ginger Rogers pretends to be a twelve year old and and almost starts an affair, but yet yeah, it's it's wrong, and then you just think this is a kind of pedo comedy, okay, but it's not because she's a grown woman. But you know, you've actually made me think I have to go back and look at Buddy Buddy. <laughs> oh, you should! It is so much fun. I I know he hated it. He he hated the film himself. Um, but like just as an, an end of an era or kind of goodbye, because you've got, you know, Jack Lemon and Walter Matthau in it as well. And, but it is so much more crude and obvious than it's like real peak stuff. I just love it because Klaus Kinski isn't wearing a cock necklace, basically. <laughs> we are talking about that later on in the year, Kat. I'm trying to remember if it's August or November, but definitely we've got Buddy Buddy coming up. You're in my calendar somewhere. Like, I love how Mike books us up a year in advance. (laughs) 
And I just totally forget. I totally forget what I'm doing till like the next year. And then it's like, oh, yeah, I agreed to this like a year ago. Oh, I do that all the time. And sometimes it's me looking at an email and saying, oh, fuck. I said I'd do that and I'm doing it on Friday. Oh, shit. Yeah, that's actually June. So that will be, I think there's some, um, some underappreciated films that we're talking about in June. With yes. Heather, that one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, with Heather. That is also the month of Popeye and Super Mario Brothers, two other oh, flops. Popeye was wow. my first ever film in the cinema, and I have never seen it again. Not because I hated it, I loved it. And I can remember the songs, like I was, what, six when I saw that? I can remember the songs, like I can vividly remember scenes, but I've never gone back to it in case it's different. Like I just didn't want to mess with it in case it, it wasn't as I remembered. Yeah, so long story short, you don't have to see a song is born. You don't have to be a Hawks completist. That's really okay. If you're a big jazz fan, you can watch some of those jam sessions that they have in there, but yeah, don't don't feel that you need to. The music is terrific. Those musical sequences are great. So maybe you could just find them online and watch them. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. down there like a good girl and in just a minute you'll forget that you have any trouble <laughs> That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at my man, Godfrey. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Kat and Maitland. So, Kat, you're going to be around all month long as we talk about these screwball comedies. But I'm still going to ask you every single week, what have you been up to? I think this was my fault, wasn't it? I uh, This was an errant tweet I sent about two in the morning about, hey, why don't you do some screwball comedies this this whole season thing? I think you're right. And you were like writing a book about screwball comedies. So this is all. Oh, God, don't even start me on that stupid book, which is like this thing's been going on for years. And when I first started it, I was like, oh, you know, there can't be that many screwballs. And I'll just do think that I found at least 250. So that's an ongoing thing. That won't be any time soon. I got my Schwarowski book to finish before then, all the books. Um, what am I doing now, though? Um, so I've been doing a bit of producing recently, actually. I've been going the other side, the other side, which I like. And the one that I can say is uh, the second site, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I can't say what I've commissioned for that, but I've commissioned some stuff for that. I've done a couple of other projects that haven't been announced. For my own work, I just did a commentary for Sean Baker's Red Rocket, talking of class, and that's just come out uh, in the States only, though, I think through Lionsgate. It's an 84, but I think it's gone out through Lionsgate. That's kind of big. You know, that's a proper film. <laughs> Let me on a proper film. So that was lovely. But, oh, oh, yeah, and check out my Patreon 
Confessions of a Sydney Slut. Maitland, what is the late Maitland, what is the latest with you? The latest with me is that I've just launched a Substack newsletter about vintage gay adult books. A longtime love of mine. Anybody who's heard me talk about almost anything has heard at some point about the vintage gay adult books. They are adult novels written between roughly 1968 and 1982. Genre novels that feature detectives and outer space adventures, thrillers, mysteries that have take place entirely in a world defined by gay men. They were written by gay men, for gay men, very subversive in the way that they undermine stereotypes about what kind of lives gay men lived and what kind of lives, what kind of people gay men were. Endlessly interesting to talk about with the best covers ever. There are many, many people who have never read one of these books, but wow, have they seen those covers. Lurid, playful, eye-catching in every way. And you can find that at vintagegaybooks.substack.com. Right now, the newsletter is free. I'm hoping that I can get enough people hooked on it that they'll be willing to convert to a paid subscription later. But right now, it's all there. Well, thank you so much, ladies, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. To inquire about advertising on the Projection Booth, email sales at advertisecast.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projectionbooth. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. It really